Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 29th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Unionism in Northern Ireland is united against the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yesterday, the four largest parties released a joint declaration opposing the protocol. It says, we, the undersigned unionist political leaders, affirm our opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol, its mechanisms and structures, and reaffirm our unalterable position that the protocol must be rejected and replaced by arrangements which fully respect Northern Ireland's position as a constituent and integral part of the United Kingdom. Unionism stands united in opposing the protocol. The Irish Sea border must go. It undermines the union and is costing Northern Ireland £850 million per year. It's time for the government to act. That's the voice of the DUP. Belfast Good Friday Agreement creates stability here in Northern Ireland. And the Austrian Union's party support that Belfast Agreement. The protocol undermines the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Therefore, we cannot support that. The voice of the UUP there, and here's the voice of the TUV. The removal of the protocol is the imperative for anyone who cherishes our rightful place within the United Kingdom and who wishes to oppose the All-Ireland that the protocol is seeking to design. Now is the time for all unionists to stand strong. And therefore, I welcome this declaration of unalterable opposition to this iniquitous protocol. This joint declaration also has the support of the PUP. Unionism stands united today against the protocol. The British government tore up the Act of Union and also the Belfast Agreement. In doing this, they diluted our Britishness. So today we stand strong against the protocol and we call on the British government to remove the protocol. Jeffrey Donaldson, Doug Beattie, Jim Allister and Billy Hutchinson taking a joint stand. Let's talk, first of all, to Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD, for Kevin Monaghan about this. Good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There is only one way to interpret this, is there not? And that is uh, that the protocol has to go, or if it doesn't go, uh, we're looking at uh, the collapse of the institutions. Uh, if the protocol goes, we're talking about a hard border. If we're talking about about the collapse of the institutions and we're talking about the collapse of uh, the peace process. 
Good morning, Michael, and hello to your listeners. I was struck uh, when I was reading the declaration yesterday, but it was more stark when listening to um, your voices there that while unionism appears to be very clear in terms of what it opposes, there's very little in terms of what they're actually for. What are they suggesting is actually the alternative to the protocol. Remember, the protocol is an international agreement. It was negotiated over a long period of time. It took a number of guises between Mm -hmm. the EU and the British government. Um, It was a consequence of a Brexit that was championed by a number of the parties that were... That's the point, though. That's that's exactly the point, isn't it? That uh, if the unionists want rid of the protocol... Uh, well, the only option then is a no-deal Brexit that they call the whole thing off and you have a border between Europe and the United Kingdom on the island of Ireland. And that's simply not going to be accepted by any of the parties. And it, it, agreement. Well, well, if you recall, the British government... Well, if it's not accepted by the British government, then it's clear, is it not? And this goes back to my original point that there will be no power sharing because there will be no unionist party to share that power. Well, that would be uh, an action of self-destruction on the part of unionism, because I think what that would inevitably create is the circumstances. Is that what we're looking at? I don't know, to be quite frank. Well, about what it. other options are there? Based, well, based on the, well, there is one other option that uh, they welch on the commitment that they're giving to their uh, uh, constituencies. Uh, that's the four unionist parties, uh, which uh, would break uh, an election promise, because we're looking at a, a promise in the coming weeks, uh, if not in May. Well, uh, let's see Let's see about that. There is another option, of course, and it's important to remember why we're in this situation in the first place. Brexit, we predicted quite rightly, as it appears, was going to be calamitous, um, not particularly for Ireland, but we also indicated that it would be the same for Britain. What the unionist political leaders um, were essentially saying yesterday is that they want to be part of the same dysfunction um, with regard to fuel shortages, empty shelves, all of the economic turmoil that Brexit has caused in Britain. The North has been insulated for the most part from that precisely because Mm. the protocol is in place. Mm. And what unionist political leaders are saying is essentially they want to be part of that. Now, while political unionism may be saying that, it's my belief, and I I, um, derive this from my own interaction Mm. with businesses and with farmers and with community representatives, particularly in the border region, that that's not what they want. Um, and they're very emphatic that the protocol is not a perfect solution because there is no perfect solution. Yeah, but you can't have power sharing right? without unionist parties. Well, yes, and that's right. what, this is where so, unionism has... So all of that is irrelevant. All of that is irrelevant. Well, I, to me, the focus now must be on ensuring that we have the full implementation of the protocol. Yes. Well, the focus, the, the focus has to be on the British government. Right. Let's... Uh, let me to finish a sentence, uh, uh, Michael. I'm, I'm sorry. The, mm. But the point I'm making is that... While there needs to be full implementation, there also needs to be maximum flexibility. And the answer to all of this, there is a fourth option to the, um, to the, um, the suggestions that you have made. The, the fourth option is that Britain doesn't divulge from the European Union in respect of trade, in respect mm. of customs, mm. and in respect of um, checks and balances. And in that regard, everybody's a winner. Because from, for, I'm from Monaghan, and you're, um, you're based in, in Loud. Um, we have a vested interest in ensuring that trade between the island of Ireland and Britain is as seamless as possible. Okay. Brexit put paid to that. But at the moment, the North has a unique position in that it has access to both the EU and the British market unfettered. The difficulties arise from goods and services coming from Britain into the north of Ireland. 
the way you resolve that is by ensuring that there is no divergence. Okay, I won't go over uh, the whole thing again as I suggested it, uh, but Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down is on the line. Uh, what do you think uh, this joint declaration means in terms of the future of Northern Ireland? Well, I'm sure unionists are queuing up to speak to Mark Cartney. Uh, uh, probably in the fingers of one hand uh, I'm sure they're not exactly uh, beating down the doors of his office in Monaghan but can I say that what yesterday's declaration quite clearly showed is that there's not a scintilla of support amongst political unionism for the protocol But what does that mean? Just going back to those options It means that there can be no further political uh, stability in Northern Ireland until this issue is removed. Mr Carty asked the very obvious question, what's the alternative? Very simple alternative. 94% of the goods that come into Northern Ireland go no further. 94%. They don't go into the EU via the Irish Republic. They don't go anywhere apart from Northern Ireland. Quite simply, on the face basis, ban the 6% from coming into Northern Ireland and let them come into the EU via Dublin. Now, I do it on a phased basis. So instead of bringing the goods into line... OK, but you're trying to rewrite Brexit, uh, which the European Union is not open to. Yeah, but the protocol was designed to stop goods coming Mm. into Northern Ireland and then into the EU, i.e. the Irish Republic. If you can solve that problem without the protocol and protect Northern Ireland's uh, uh, basis as part of the United Kingdom, then that meets everybody's concerns. But you can't. I mean, that that appears to be the case, that you can't. That the European Union is not open to renegotiating the Brexit. Yes, that that probably is true, but the UK government, our government, can invoke Article 16. Which and pull, collapses pull the, the protocol, yeah, which puts a, a hard border on the island of Ireland. But the only, we're only putting a hard border on the island of Ireland for 6% of the trade. Okay. Bring that trade in by, by Dublin, don't bring so it in what? So what? So, I mean, I, I mean, the answer to both of you is, so what? Uh, it doesn't matter whether it makes sense or not, whether it's logical or illogical, the consequence remains the same. Whether it's 6% or 96%, the consequence well, remains the same. It, it it means that it will result in a hard border. Or if the British don't do that, uh, obviously there's no unionist political party available to share power in the North. Mike, Mike I'm surprised that someone on your huge salary, as one of the top presenters in the Republic of Ireland, mm. could come out with such an outrageous statement. Obviously, there's no hard border if there are no goods crossing from the United Kingdom into the EU via the Irish Republic. So therefore, that's your problem solved. That is the whole motivation. But can I tell you why the EU want to stand by the protocol? It's nothing to do whatsoever with a hard border in the Ireland. They want the the UK to come out of the EU with blood pouring out of its back Mm. so that other countries such as Hungary and Holland, who at the drop of a hat may also decide to leave, are deterred from doing so. That's what this is all about. Northern Ireland is a pawn in the overall scheme of the EU to keep together uh, its its 27 nations. Now, that's a practical solution. The problem is the EU won't even look at that. They're absolutely uh, wedded to the protocol and the UK government have the power to bring okay. this crashing down by invoking Article 16 All right. and, and I hope they will and to summarise that in a few words uh, you're saying wishful thinking to Matt Carthy I think Matt Carthy you're probably saying wishful thinking to Jim Wells well it's interesting that Jim is suggesting that we would ban um, the importation into the north of 6% of Northern people. Ireland not the north Northern Ireland well what that would require Jim is checks so I'm glad to hear that you are not 
um, principally opposed to the notion of having border controls um, on goods coming um, from from Britain um, onto this I- island because that it stands in stark contrast to what the declaration said. But remember, even within those 6% of goods, they don't rarely actually um, are brought in in a box and then shipped to either the south or to other parts of the EU. Um, they're generally component parts of other goods that are manufactured in the north and sometimes they can be things like animal feed which are actually fed to animals in the north which are then um, subsequently brought um, to processors in the south. So nothing with this is simple and we shouldn't pretend that there is any simple solution. The protocol, as I say, was as a result of three years of intensive negotiations all brought about because the British government wants to diverge from EU rules, regulations and trading practices. And unfortunately, the DUP in particular championed that every step of the way because they wanted to see a hardening of the border in Ireland. They failed in that attempt because thankfully the EU recognised the dangers that that would provide based largely on testimonies from businesses, manufacturers, farmers and communities across um, across the north, including those of a unionist persuasion. There's so little between... There's so little between... I'm sure... I'm sorry, Jim, but I didn't catch that. I was just going to say the I'm so sure the, 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 uh, uh, said Mr. Carty's door uh, demanding to speak to me. Okay, but I, I was just going to say there's so. I was just going to say there's so little between you, but you're worlds apart, Jim Wells. Yeah, well, what I'm saying to you is there's no trade across the border. There's no need for a hard border. If you simply now accept the point that we couldn't do this overnight, it would have to be phased. But basically, what you'd do is you'd gradually reduce the amount of goods going across the border to nil, and you'd have what's called a trusted trader status, that everybody bringing goods from Great Britain into Northern Ireland would have to sign a declaration that it would not be re-exported into the EU, and those would be stamped accordingly. And that trusted trader status works very well with trade for the rest of the world. Why shouldn't it work with the Irish Republic? Therefore, you have nothing to check you have no need for a hard border because there are no goods going from the United Kingdom into EU over that hard border. And at the moment, it's a tiny fraction of the goods coming into Northern Ireland at the moment. So what's the big deal? The big deal is the protocol has to stay because the UK has to bear pain for having the tenacity to leave the European Union. The protocol is, was actually agreed by the British government. So for me, it's past time that unionist leaders actually accepted the reality that the protocol is here. It can't be wished away. What we now need to do is make sure it works for everyone. And what unionism should be doing is using their influence with the British government through the existing joint framework to actually optimise the actual opportunities which exist for businesses, farmers, manufacturers in the north. This is an opportunity for all of those sectors to grow and rather than actually embracing that unfortunately unionism is trying to tear it down Jim Wells Well the fact is that there is no unionist worth his salt who has any time for the protocol because it's not simply a matter of trading it means that we remain part of the single market we remain under the control of the mm. European court and we remain under the control of European directives it is impossible to retain our sovereignty within the United Kingdom and also to retain the protocol so even beyond the goods issue the protocol is toxic as far as unionism is concerned what I'm very pleased about yesterday was the unanimity shown by every faction of unionism and the reality is in Northern Ireland we know that nothing can succeed unless it has the support of the majority of national and the majority of unionists and this protocol hasn't got the support of any element of political unionism. I, I take it your leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, is going to call uh, an election in a couple of weeks' time. I think it's about 
32 days uh, is the deadline for that. Uh, and if, uh, Jeffrey Donaldson has made it very clear, if there's not movement on this, then he will ask his ministers to resign from the executive of the Northern Ireland Assembly, Mr Carlin, the Northern Ireland Assembly, not the occupied six counties or the north or the northern state. And that will precipitate an election where the people will have their say on the protocol. Right, so and that I will collapse the institutions at the end of October. Well, it's a wee bit more complex than that. Um, um, what happens is then there's a six-week negotiation period and then the Secretary of State can call an election at a time that he feels appropriate. So it wouldn't automatically occur. I suspect we're talking about an election here in January uh, to, to deal with this issue. And I'm sure that the, the, the unionist people will turn out in their thousands to sort of say that the protocol is poison. The protocol can't continue. Okay. And of course the UK so, government's so, hand invokes... So, so just to move this to the next stage... Uh, if an election is held in January and the protocol remains in place, uh, it's clear, is it not, from the uh, joint declaration yesterday, this joint stand that the four parties took, that none of the unionist parties will take up the seats that they win? That, uh, Matt, my understanding, yes. Mm-hmm. Matt Carthy. I think we need to recall once again that the people of the North, when they were voting for Brexit, rejected it, a majority, an emphatic okay. majority. So we now have a situation whereby, even within that, that result was negated by the British government. They ignored the democratically expressed wish of the people to remain part of the European Union. They decided to force them out. That created an issue with regard to the the border that would have had very serious economic, social and political consequences. The route to resolve that was the protocol. Nobody has proposed anything that is better or um, of more value at this stage. And the only route that unionism mm. appears to be taken to taken okay. to, is to replicate the dysfunction. But let me put it to you that system. you're preaching to the converters and that those uh, who disagree with you will continue to degree, disagree with you and you might as well be speaking to a brick wall. So you're looking into a, an election in January uh, and after which uh, there will be no prospect of forming a government. Well, let's see what happens. Um, in my, in, in, I'm a big believer that in negotiation and in dialogue and we've seen what we have come overcome in terms of um, seamlessly you know, unpenetrable barriers in the past through negotiation. Right. I think it is important to note that, again, two of the parties that were um, talking about the value of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement, as they described it yesterday, were parties that emphatically opposed that agreement. So in time, they have come to see the value of it. Um, and I believe that also in time, they will come to see the value of the protocol, if for no other reason than um, the businesses in their communities, the manufacturers and the farmers are actually depending on it. For okay. their Jim Wells, I think the slight technical issue there, the two parties that supported the agreement were the PUP and the Ulster and they were eulogising about it yesterday. The TUV and the DUP opposed the Good Friday Agreement and have never praised it. Uh, so, you know, let's get that factually correct. Uh, we still remain opposed to terrorists in government, the release of prisoners and so many other issues that emerged in 1998. But we are where we are and we are, we're part of the institutions. We want a solution to this. We want Northern Ireland to move forward. Northern Ireland was actually doing very well economically before the outbreak of coronavirus. And I'm sure uh, had that not occurred, we'd been on the top of the economic cycle. So the EU has not damaged our economy whatsoever. 
apart from the issue of the coronavirus. And there's a bright future for Northern Ireland if we can get this issue solved. And it has to be solved. Well, and remember, we're, we're uh, dancing in a head of a pin here. But well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, as I put it to you both earlier, there's so little between you, but your world's apart. Well, it's 6% of trade. That's between us. And there's a political dogma because mm. obviously it suits Sinn Féin to reduce any barriers between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic because they're an all-Ireland party. And we are most certainly not. And I'd like him to give me a few names of the Protestant and Unionists who are coming through his door in Monaghan. I have my doubts. Mm. Matt Carthy, final words. Well, well, all I can say to you, when a farmer comes to me from County Down, County Armagh, County Tyrone to talk about you or domestic policies and how it affects their business, I don't ask them their religious or their political no, affiliation. You're talking, talking to nationalists. You're talking to nationalists. Absolutely okay. not. Absolutely not, because the truth of the matter is, and the poll results um, in terms of Brexit itself confirm this, the emphatic result in relation to the Brexit referendum, where a majority of people voted to remain part of the European Union, would not have been possible unless a sizable number of unionisms were unionism was in within that number. We we'll leave it there. That every the focus now, as I say, has to be about ensuring that the protocol does what it was supposed to do, and that's to mitigate against the worst implications. And that's of not acceptable, party. obviously, to the four unionist leaders and their parties, as we've been hearing. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you both indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan, Matt Carthy, and Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as you've been hearing, uh, an inquest was held in uh, Drogheda yesterday into the stillbirth of little Willow Clark, who was born at 38 weeks on the 15th of August 2018. Uh, the county coroner, Ronan McGuire, returned a, a verdict of medical misadventure. On behalf of the family, they just want to say they feel vindicated by the outcome. It took three years to get to this point. Uh, the thankful to the coroner for the thorough way with which he investigated it. Uh, we heard from a number of witnesses who conceded uh, that the guidelines were not followed in relation to Baby Willow. Uh, we heard evidence that the staffing levels were 50% lower than they should have been on the night. Uh, we heard evidence that the staff were uh, overworked on the night and that the guidelines in relation to the management of a high-risk pregnancy, gestational diabetes, were not adhered to. We would echo what Pamela has said in relation to the follow-through on recommendations. They are only as good as their implementation. Pamela and Patrick and her extended family deserve enormous credit for the courage that they showed. The coroner said that he was most impressed, in fact, by the evidence that Pamela and Patrick gave. So we hope that their courage in highlighting these issues will cause patient safety to be improved. Right, that's the family's solicitor, Roger Murray. How could a perfectly healthy baby have died in what should have been the safest of places? That place was Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in 2018. And that question was the question that Little Willow Clark's mother, Pamela, was asking uh, following uh, the child's stillbirth, as we say, at 38 weeks. Uh, She said she had wanted to have a cesarean birth uh, because she had already had two children 
and their births had been extremely traumatic and she was very anxious that Willow would be delivered by Caesarean. She felt though that she wasn't being listened to and she wasn't happy about being induced uh, when she was uh, about to go into labour and uh, she started to panic when her baby wasn't uh, moving around. The midwife, as she said, told her that the child was asleep and then she was shouting and she told the inquest, why are you putting me to sleep? Why are you wasting time? Uh, afterwards, uh, she had to listen to the cries of newborn babies and uh, the inquest also heard that only two midwives were on duty for more than 20 patients back in 2018. Uh, when this tragedy occurred for the clerks. It has been a long, painful three years to get here and sometimes I did not think I would make it. We stand here today after we fought endlessly for answers about the wrongful death of our baby girl Willow. Healthy babies don't just die. Since Willow tragically passed, I have always maintained this shouldn't have happened. We feel we weren't listened to by the people who were taking care of me and my baby. Willow was silenced, but not today. My beautiful baby girl, your voice was heard. Our message to other families is, if something doesn't feel right, speak out and make your voice heard. The professionals need to listen. We are human beings and not just medical numbers. Never feel stupid for voicing your concerns because it might just save your life or your baby's life. I was in the safest place possible and my voice was not listened to. We as patients are not being listened to, and this must change in all aspects of healthcare. Particular emphasis must be put on training within our hospitals, so we can finally see safer, better maternity services in all maternity hospitals throughout the four corners of Ireland. We as a family, with the help of our solicitor, Roger Murray, and all of Cal and Tansy's solicitors, have finally got some answers. But our pain doesn't stop now. We must live with what has been done to our little girl for the rest of our lives. We hope by speaking out today that we can see change. There is no point in making recommendations if the hospital is not going to abide by them. Please don't let Willow's death be in vain. I hope Willow's legacy will help save others and no other family must endure this terrible nightmare. Dreadful, a bittersweet day, no doubt, uh, for the Clarks yesterday and probably a lot more bitter than it was sweet. Uh, that's uh, the late Willow Clark's mother, Pamela, speaking outside of uh, the uh, coroner's court after that verdict was uh, delivered to Indrahara yesterday. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. As you may have heard in the bulletins uh, this morning, uh, this year's living wage is being calculated at twelve ninety an hour. It's the equivalent of just over twenty six thousand euro, twenty six thousand two hundred euro a year. Uh, that rate of twelve ninety is far higher than. Uh, the minimum wage of uh, 10.70, which uh, apparently means that about a fifth of workers are earning less than the living wage. Uh, the minimum wage should not increase according to the Restaurants Association of Ireland and it's one of the things it's calling for in its pre-budget submission. Mark McGowan is President of the Restaurants Association and he's on the line. A very good morning to you Mark and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, as I say that's uh, just one of the things that you're looking for in your pre-budget submission. Absolutely Michael, good morning to you. So the restaurant industry has, and hospitality industry has been severely impacted, one of the most severely impacted sectors uh, throughout the pandemic. 
So what we're looking for is a comprehensive and targeted package of supports that will bring us back into, we're looking at about 18 months before we get to pre-pandemic levels of business. And we feel at this time um, a rise to that amount in terms of the minimum wage will have a severe impact on, on the industry. So what we're hoping is that the EWS will be in place that we're able to maintain current levels to begin with. And there's another package in terms of, obviously, the VAT rate at 9% is very important. We're hoping that will be extended into 2022. Um, debt warehousing, and we're looking for, for more budgets in terms of um, in tourism development, etc., to maintain the and maintain the industry. Okay, what would a, an increase in the minimum wage mean for you? Um, well, first of all, we're looking at we've we've had a serious amount of inflation across the sector due to the demand to such a shortage of skill sets that we have. Um, it's it's not sustainable at the moment in terms of. I mean, there's, there's certain businesses that have kitchen porters are being paid up to thirty thousand per year. That was never something that um, a business like in a restaurant business would be able to survive. So we need to we need to relook at how things are, are being done at the minute, and that's why the EWS is so important. It's vital in terms of ensuring the sustainability of restaurants. Okay, but if the living wage is twelve ninety, and that's calculated on the basis of being able to afford your rent, uh, go to the pictures uh, maybe once a week, maybe go out for a couple of drinks, buy a packet of cigarettes, go on a holiday once a year, and all of that sort of thing, buy a, a winter coat or whatever is necessary, just some of uh, the fundamental things that people should be able to expect in life. How can people survive on less than that? If it's twelve ninety and they're getting uh, ten twenty, I think is the minimum wage. Uh, how can they survive? Well, the the wage is diverse across the industry in terms of the different positions. So the we're talking about the entry wage would be slightly lower than that. But if you're looking at um, chefs, they're up to they they can be paid up to fifty sixty thousand euros a year for the for a senior chef. If you're looking at sommeliers and um, the higher level or management side of uh, the restaurant business, they're on a lot higher than twelve ninety an hour. So it's kind of it's a figure that's 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 um, that's brought out in terms of I mean I mean there's a lot more more. Um, employees that'll be paid more than that figure is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I know, but for those who aren't, for those who are on the minimum wage, uh, how can they survive if it's not enough to live on? Well, many many of these um, employees are students. They, um, they're working hard, obviously, in college, and it's, a, it's, it's part-time positions that would be up to the, the minimum wage is what they're being paid. But if they're making a career within the industry, well, then there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of prospects. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very enjoyable industry to work in and there's no doubt about it that you can be very successful if you work hard at it. So um, it's, it's not a case that they'd be on that wage for, for the foreseeable. Okay. Um, your industry, uh, like so many, has uh, been on its back and closed for the most part over the course of the last 18 months. Uh, and whatever about people being paid or whatever rate they're being paid, you want... Uh, support to continue in terms of meeting wages. Absolutely. So, um, as I said before, um, it's the the hospitality sector um, amounts to about nine point three billion per year is what it contributes to the economy. It employs two hundred and sixty five thousand people. So, in order for us to ensure that we have a really good tourism um, sector within about eighteen months' time, well, then we have to make sure that this comprehensive and targeted package of support is in place 
to make sure that we're able to, to carry on. Mm. We need to make sure, like, if you look at what it does to the local economy in terms of, um, it's, it's an entry level into many other sectors. So uh, we just need to make sure that we have a, a really good budget that, that helps us out, you know. And you want it to be cheaper to do business. You want the VAT rate to remain at 9%, but you also want drink to be cheaper. We're looking for excise to come down approximately about 7%. If you're to benchmark against other states across Europe, yeah. we're probably, the I think, second or third highest. So a 7% uh, decrease in excise would, um, would bring the price of drink down slightly and um, it would be it would be a nice boost. How slightly? Can you give us a, an example? If it's a, a fiver for a, a pint, uh, if you reduce the excise by 7.5%, what would that pint cost? It's, it's hard to judge exactly what way, because there's other elements that come into that, Michael, in terms of okay. we're looking at the surround cost of, of pouring a pint now, in terms of utilities, the labour cost is going up, everything seems to be going up, and we can't get fuel over in the UK at the minute, so I mean, uh, hopefully that doesn't impact us over here. But um, I can't give you an exact figure, but it's based on uh, the hectolitre of alcohol. Um, so we are, I think, about 300% higher than, than Germany, as an example, um, in terms of the cost of, um, of, of our excise. So um, the cost of a bottle of wine here in comparison to France, is, in simple terms, is a hell of a lot more expensive. So you can see the difficulties restaurants have in terms of passing that on to the customer um, and offering value. Tell us about the voucher scheme that you're asking for. So the stay and spend that was initially um, put in place by the government, um, it wasn't fit for purpose, it didn't work out. So what we're looking for is something a little bit more simplified that the consumer and the business would be able to get a return at source. Uh, we feel that this would be the, the best way for it to happen. It was very awkward last time, there was an app involved. Uh, they had to uh, submit to revenue by the end of the year to get a rebate. Mm. It didn't work out, so we're looking for something a little bit more simple that uh, the consumer can use that source. Well, Sinn Féin has been suggesting a voucher system, 100 for each child in the country and 200 for each adult uh, that you'd be able to use uh, on a card. Uh, is that the type of thing that uh, you'd be supporting or calling for? We would. We, we would agree with something along those lines. I think it would, it would work out. It would be a nice boost and um, might encourage people to get out and, and, uh, and spend. And it'll help out a few families maybe that need, need a holiday. It'll, it'll help them out as well. But I think the important thing is that the business does get it back at source um, because they, if it was to happen by the end of the year, well then, you know, and, and if it was something that really took off, they might find it hard. All right, uh, you're looking uh, for support in uh, taking on apprentices. Uh, is it difficult to get staff? It's extremely difficult at the moment. It's the di- most difficult period of time that we've had within the industry. It's the most difficult time I've had as a business owner in terms of trying to get staff, maintain staff, uh, retraining, and that comes down to many different elements. The PUP was, was one issue that we had. Uh, many people weren't coming off it. Um, and obviously then other people have uh, emigrated and gone into different career lines so it's it's been extremely difficult so we're hoping that um, an apprenticeship scheme will bring people into the industry at grassroots level Um, we're also looking for a national training centre for hospitality that will encourage people to come into it as well and we need to obviously as as employers we have responsibility to try and bring people in and, and train them up as best we can as well and uh, I suppose make, make our industry more attractive to people. All right. Uh, what's the sense in uh, the industry at this stage? Uh, do uh, most restaurants feel that they've survived it? 
many have um, so a lot of business have closed and some some have uh, naturally closed they could have been coming to the end of their lifespan whether that be uh, business owners retiring and then we have um, new up and coming restaurateurs that are taking on premises as mm. well so it's a bit of a mix I can't say exactly um, how many have closed and how many have, have reopened but mm-hmm. it's extremely tough out there Michael there's no doubt about it there's been an initial mush so to speak for uh, people to get out wine and dine and enjoy themselves but mm. we're already seeing a decline now at the moment I can see it in, in my uh, bookings coming forward for Christmas and it's kind of that's echoed throughout the industry mm. that it is starting to slow down and our, that's our concern, I suppose, for the future. Is where are we going to be at post Christmas? Um, we have to see what happens now in October twenty uh, second, when um, more restrictions will be eased. And um, we're hoping that we'll have um, a Christmas that is restriction free, other than mask wearing, I suppose, and that we're able yeah. to, um, you know, try and try and fill the premises safely. Yeah, it, it, safe it, it seems that from the twenty second of October, all of uh, the restrictions will be gone anyway, because uh, the law will be uh, extinguished at that stage, and uh, there is no uh, amendment uh, pending. So it, it seems uh, as though uh, that will be the case, uh, and I imagine that those uh, that are still open. Uh, differ from business to business and that some have survived it better than others. Uh, we'll be hearing what the government has to say in relation uh, to your submission and everything else for that matter when it announces uh, the budget in less than two weeks now and we leave it there for the moment and thank you as always for joining us today. Mark McGowan is the President of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's gone awful cold all of a sudden, hasn't it? Anyway, uh, let's uh, get to some of uh, the comments uh, that have uh, been coming to us. Tommy on the phone to us today saying that uh, the government uh, seemed to think uh, that people working the working in uh, the hospitality sector just sat around during the pandemic waiting on things to reopen and living on the pop. They didn't, he says. Many were forced to find alternative jobs or retrain as they had mortgages and bills to pay. And that's why there are problems finding staff. They were forced to leave the sector. Thanks uh, for your call to the programme. Tommy Patrick Kennedy writing to us uh, saying whatever measures are included in the budget, the social welfare budget will be under the microscope. He says he has three questions he believes uh, that uh, should be answered. Uh, in relation to the 2019 welfare budget, he says, where exactly would they make future cuts or believe significant savings can be achieved? He says he thinks this is an important question, as it appears that only 20% of the pre-COVID welfare budget was being spent on welfare. As a lay person would understand the meaning of the word, I don't regard the post-COVID pop payments as welfare. Thank you indeed. I'm not sure... Uh, you understand uh, the word welfare, uh, Patrick, but it, it relates uh, to unemployment, uh, to uh, disability payment, to the pensions, uh, to uh, any state payment uh, to people who are, are not working, uh, as the case may be. Uh, the pub payment, obviously, was a pandemic emergency payment. But he says it appears that not one cent of the significant sums that we borrowed last year went on pub. Uh, and he says uh, that the total cost of the pub payments during 2020 was $5 billion. the total cost of the EWSS scheme was $4 billion, and the total cost of COVID-related increases in 
the health budget was two billion. I think that might have actually been four billion, Patrick. Uh, but he says uh, the five billion that was spent on PUP in 2020 appears to have been fully funded from the five billion euro surplus that was available in the pre-COVID PRSI social insurance fund of four billion and rainy day fund of one and a half billion. And he wonders, have we been sold a pop on pop? I think there were a lot of people out of work, Patrick, uh, in fairness, and I think uh, that those emergency payments uh, cost a lot and we've been borrowing in the region of £20 billion over the course of the last two years and much of that has gone into the health service and indeed uh, the vaccination programme for that. Uh, Mary in touch with us on the phone. Mary says part of the reason why restaurants are struggling at the minute is because a lot of people have concerns about everything reopening and they're holding off on going back out into the social scene. Uh, They're just holding off and saying they'll do it uh, down the line. Not everyone is ready for these things to reopen fully and they need to ease themselves back into normal life at a slower pace than perhaps others do. Uh, Thanks uh, indeed uh, for... uh, calling us today as well. Mary Paddy in touch with us saying that restaurants can't have it every way. They want to pay uh, workers uh, minimum wage and then they want state support in order to keep business uh, afloat. How how can they ask for this with a straight face, he says. It's disgraceful. Thanks, uh, Paddy, as always, uh, for your text to the programme today. And thanks to you if you have been in touch with us, whether you've been phoning us, texting us, whatsapping us, uh, getting in touch with us on social media, emailing us, or as uh, Patrick Kennedy uh, did, uh, writing to us uh, and sending it in an envelope with a stamp on it. Uh, It's always good to hear from you, no matter uh, how you get in touch. uh, We always appreciate your feedback. Now, if you were watching television last night uh, and you were watching the Primetime Investigates programme, uh, you may have uh, been disturbed at uh, the revelation of organs being retained and then being incinerated. Uh, This is an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Mary Lou MacDonald. This morning we heard very harrowing news um, about an investigation being carried out at Cork University Maternity Hospital after it emerged that the organs of 18 babies were transported uh, abroad and disposed of by incineration without the consent or the knowledge of their parents. And I'm sure we can only imagine the extreme hurt and distress that those families are now uh, experiencing. Uh, But Ceann Corla, this is not the first um, scandal uh, and upset around uh, organ retention and matters arising. And it is beyond belief that we are at this point uh, again just beyond belief. Uh, As the Taoiseach will know, what happened in Cork University Maternity Hospital is in breach of HSE guidelines that go back to uh, 2012, arising from a previous uh, scandal. Uh, So we need answers. We need to know why this happened. And I, I really think as a matter of urgency, time needs to be made available for the Minister for Health to come before the House to make a statement, to take questions, uh, to give answers to the doll, but more importantly, to start to give answers and assurances to those families in particular and to the wider community. Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald, People Before Profit, uh, Mick Barry TD, also had questions he wanted answered. Uh, how was this allowed to happen? Uh, it happened under the pressure of the pandemic. The, pr- the pandemic bore down on every Irish hospital. Did anything similar happen in any other Irish hospital as the pandemic loomed? Um, We want there to be time this week week for statements on this, and in particular for question and answer. 
with the Minister. Independent TD, Matty McGrath, is outraged by the whole thing. We do need a debate here on this, which is truly shocking, and it actually didn't happen during the pandemic. It happened in November before the, in November before the pandemic arrived on our shores. So we can't blame the pandemic for everything, every whole thing. This is truly outrageous. This could go on. But of course, you ushered in a Boston here, so can we expect anything better? The Taoiseach Micheál Martin said he also wants answers to the many questions now that stem from this report and the Primetime Investigates investigation. First of all, I appreciate uh, what Deputy MacDonald has, has raised and, um, and Deputy Barry and, and Deputy McGrath. Uh, I think it is um, in, very difficult to comprehend um, how this has occurred and um, because this was the subject of very exhaustive inquiry in the past, very comprehensive across every single hospital in the country. Uh, the Dunn inquiry would have been uh, involved in that. And um, in my view, that this was done without the, consult, without the consent or indeed the knowledge of the bereaved parents is cruel and, and unacceptable. And um, I certainly would be anxious to facilitate a debate in the House and questions um, to, be, to be asked. Uh, I think the Minister is seeking assurances from every other site across the country that this did not occur. Um, there are two inquiries, I understand there are reviews underway within the hospital at the moment or within the HSC. But that said, I, I understand fully uh, the desire of the House to have some um, debate here in the House and, 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 and the issue raised in respect of the parents concerned. So I certainly, on this side of the house, we would be facilitator of that. OK, well, uh, consensus, unusual to get con- consensus, but probably not surprising uh, because it, it really is uh, a disturbing story and uh, I think it's clear that it's a story that uh, disturbed each of uh, the TDs there, the four TDs that we heard there, including the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to last night's uh, debate on Our Lady's Hospital in Navan uh, that took place in the Dáil. Three TDs in County Meath, Padre Tobin, Johnny Girk, and Darren O'Rourke wanted to know what is happening. Will you please provide assurances tonight, Minister, that critical and emergency services at Navan Hospital will not be cut, please? Mary Butler was responding on behalf of uh, the government and the Minister wanted to give a straight answer to a straight question. No, it is not the case. So I want to lay that on the floor of the doll. You've asked me a straight question and I'm giving you a straight answer. No, it's not the case. The Minister was critical of how the HSE has been handling the situation over the course of about a a week at this stage and to the rumours that the emergency department is going to close and with that the ICU beds are going to close. For the deputies who didn't across the house who did not receive a response from the HSE I will take that away this evening and go directly to the whoever is in charge of that area and actually look for a detailed response to your good selves as to why you are not being communicated as public representatives on the ground. And indeed Sinn Féin TD Johnny Girk was also critical of the HSE. I would like if we could get something um, in writing a commitment uh, that, that these services will, will not be downgraded in the lifetime of this government. It would be good if, if the people of Mead could get that in writing because I think it would allay an awful lot of the fears that the people have and their genuine fears. Like you never see um, so many people to come together when it's something to do with a hospital or anything. So they are very, very genuine fears. And um, another reason that we are here is, is because of the HSE. They won't give any information to, uh, you know, to not just to me, but to, you know, if radio stations and that don't get um, a local station, LMFM, they, they don't get 
get information from them, then that creates fear, and that's where, um, you know, so, um, look, at um, we, we, I heard up the English on the radio this morning, and he stated that there will be no downgrading of services. Um, it, it is important um, that um, Navin Hospital needs expansion of services, not the downgrading of services. And if there is any downgrading of the A&E and the ICU in Navan, we will be left with no option but to take to the streets again. We won't let the HSE take our A&E. Okay, so Mary Butler says the ED is not closing and the ICU beds are not closing. Damien English told us that on the radio yesterday. So what is happening? Changes to Navin, changes to service as Navin will be undertaken at a planned and orderly um, when agreed on completion of the planning of the necessary planning, which is still ongoing. Planning envisaged the development of a 24-7 acute medical assessment unit at Navin, which is an extension of the current MAURs at Navin. It also includes a 7 days, 12 hours or 12-7 local injuries unit. Right. So... That's clear, isn't it? There's going to be a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week acute medical assessment unit and included in that will be a 12-hour injuries unit. This will replace the current emergency department and ensure that the hospital continues to cater for unscheduled presentations where appropriate and safe to do so. It'll replace the emergency department. Now, that's where it gets confusing because... It was very clear there that we're going to get a 24-hour MAU and a 12-hour injuries unit, which will replace the emergency department. But we were told that the emergency department is not going to close. TDs wanted clarity. Now, what we need here is a commitment to the A&E that is in the small hospital framework document, that you actually change the language, you mend the language in that document and take the threat away. Because as long as that threat is there, the, uh, the, the, the people in the HSC will be tasked to actually close the A&E overnight. That is their job. If they're to fulfill the policy direction by the government, they will be their task to close the A&E. So will you commit to taking that out of the small hospital framework doc? That's Patter Tobin, who's still concerned uh, by what it says in that document and probably by what the minister said about the MAU and the injuries unit replacing the emergency department. There is no policy to close Navin Hospital. No. What I would like to suggest, because I am only the junior minister within the Department of Health, and I do think this is a, a senior minister's conversation, and with the with the support of Deputy, uh, Minister English and Minister Byrne, I do know that they have a meeting organised with Minister Donnelly next week, in actual fact, again to discuss this. And perhaps Minister Donnelly could open it up to other Rockdis members to have that conversation. Um, because I do believe that there is no, this government has no policy whatsoever to close anything whatsoever. And I, and I think the deputies across the House, with the height of respect, would like to take me, I would like you to take me in good faith till Minister Donnelly can meet with you yourselves. Okay, that's uh, Minister Mary Butter. Let's uh, speak uh, to two of uh, the TDs we heard. In uh, that uh, clip, Aintu, leader and founder, Peter Tobin, TD for Meadwest, and Johnny Gork, Sinn Féin TD for Meadwest. Peter Tobin, uh, what about what the minister said to you there? Do you take what she said to you in good faith? Well, it was one of the most bizarre and incredible speeches I've ever heard given in the Dáil, um, because I've never heard a minister within the same speech directly contradict herself. So she basically stated there is no plan to close the A&E in Navin. And then 
in further on in the speech, and you, you've played it there, she says, this will replace the current emergency department in Navan. So they are two mutually exclusive statements. Those two statements can't exist in the same space and same time. So you do take what she said in good faith, it's just that you're uncertain about what she was saying. No, I'm certain of what she's saying. Like, I think it's as clear, as, it's, it's written in black and white mm. that she's saying that the A&E is going to close. Um, I, like the, a replacement of a service is, by any understanding, the closure of that service. You know, there's no way that they would actually be, be, be creating a new medical assessment unit, a new local injuries unit, if they were going to add it on to an existing A&E that would still be fully functional. The plan for those two services is to delete the emergency services. And, 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 and unfortunately, the, the minister didn't know what she was speaking about. Um, you know, and, and this is the, the, the difficulty with some of the standards of the debates in the Dáil at the moment, that ministers are rolled out <clears throat> with a script that they don't understand. Mm. And she and said that herself. I mean, as much as said it herself, she said that uh, she spoke to Stephen Donnelly and uh, to Thomas Byrne and to Damien English before the debate so that she could brief herself to some degree, but uh, this wasn't... No, it's, it's, it's this this isn't even in her remit. Exactly. So she's, she, this is, this is a, a, a person taking up a, a script a few minutes before they go into the doll, reading it out and hoping for the best. But at the, main, at the meantime, we have you know, the hopes of you know, 200,000 Meath people hanging on the fact that this uh, A&E remains open. And you know, I, I think w- what she has done, if she's done any justice to the people of Meath, is she has actually put it in black and white, probably for the first time, in a doll speech, confirming that the emergency department will be replaced. That it will, that it is the current policy that they are going to close it. Now, the, the serious question for us mm. is, when is that going to happen? And you know, that's why this, the Save Navin Hospital campaign will have a public meeting uh, in the Newgrange uh, Hotel tomorrow, Thursday at 8 p.m. And we're encouraging people to go along to that. Um, and we are not going to stand idly by uh, while this government tries to close our A&E. We're going to fight every means possible to protect it. We will take mm. to the streets in thousands of, uh, if we have to, because. This is, a, this is probably the most important infrastructure that exists in County Meath, and we're not going to lose it. Johnny Gork, the Minister did say that. The Minister said that the MAU would replace the ED, the Emergency Department, and when the Emergency Department closed, uh, nobody would expect ICU beds to remain in the hospital. But on the other hand, she said the Emergency Department was not closing, and there's no plans to close it. What do you make of it all? I think, Michael, after coming out of that meeting last night, I, like, I, called, I called on all um, TDs in me to put in um, a request for a topical issue last night. In fairness, um, three of us did, like, and, and we did get some clarity. It wasn't the clarity we wanted, and I would come out of that meeting last night, uh, Michael, very worried, very disappointed, and very concerned, Michael. You know, you read it there, Michael, yourself. I read it again, Michael. Changes to the services at Navin will be undertaken in a planned and orderly manner on completion of necessary planning, which is still ongoing. Planning envisages the development of 24-7 acute medical assessment unit at Navan, which is an extension of the current MAU hours at Navan. It also includes the 12-7 local injuries unit. These will replace the current emergency department. Now, what, how, how much clearer than that could it be, um, Michael? Um, and the hospital continues to cater for unscheduled presentations where 
appropriate and safe to do so. Like that couldn't be more clearer than that, Michael. And the the, the other thing, Michael, is um, you know I would encourage everybody to attend uh, the Save Navin Hospital protest tomorrow night at eight o'clock or eight thirty in the New Grinch in Navin. We also, Michael, have a protest um, organised for outside the Dáil tomorrow from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock to put as much pressure on government as we can, Michael. If these services go, Michael, they're gone for a generation mm. and there'll be, no, there'll be no getting back at them. OK. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually not sure. <laughs> I'm often confused, uh, but I'm not sure I'm as confused as I am today. Uh, the minister said that there will be a 24-7 MAU, Medical Assessment Unit, and a 12 our injuries unit as part of that. This will replace the current emergency department and ensure that the hospital continues to cater for unscheduled presentations where appropriate and safe to do so. Right. So they're going to replace the emergency department. That's what the minister said. Uh, And that seems clear. But then on the other hand, the minister is saying it's not closing. The emergency department is not closing. And Damien English, Minister Damien English told us yesterday it's not closing. Uh, and the minister last night was reading from a script uh, which undoubtedly refers to the intention, the long-term intention, which is to close the emergency department and replace it with an MAU. Uh, but what we're being told, on the other hand, is that there isn't the capacity in the matter, there isn't the, the capacity in, in the Lures, there isn't the capacity in Blanchardstown. Uh, so is this uh, an objective that, Uh, exists only on paper and that the government isn't clear in communicating to people that it's not going to happen any day soon or at least uh, that was was that the case last night because that's what Damien English said yesterday. Well can I come in there just Peter Tobin yeah. Yeah briefly if if people want to see through the smoke and mirrors here they just need to look at the small framework document it states that Navin will be a model 2 hospital. Navin was one of 10 HICWA uh, hit list hospitals a number of years ago, that the government said that they would close the A&E. Eight Nine years. of those are, are closed. Only Navin uh, has survived in that. Eight in years March, ago. In, in, in March 2020, right, just a little while ago, the government came out publicly and stated that the A&E mm. will go to a 12 hours at the end of the month. So that was as, as clear as a whistle, and it shows the time frame in the government's mind on this. So, and the only reason that that was postponed was because of the onset of COVID. I remember chairing the Save Navin Hospital campaign uh, in March 2020, and we were hearing people, uh, people were getting text messages to say that the first cases of COVID had actually been uh, identified in the country at the time. So the government were as close as 30 days from closure of the A&E overnight last March 2020. Mm. The only reason that it was saved was because uh, of, of, of COVID. Now, the idea that this country, uh, that we had so much pressure on ICU beds, so much pressure on emergency beds because of COVID that we as a country had to lock down more uh, 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 severely and for longer because we didn't have the capacity that other countries like Germany or Denmark had, that the idea that just at the edge of the COVID crisis here in September, that the government would then seek to close A&E beds and ICU beds is just absolutely bananas. And it shows how cynical the political system is when a minister can go on the ra- your radio station yesterday and a minister can stand up on the doll and literally say, we're not going to close the A&E and we are going to close the A&E in the same speech. It's just, it, no wonder people are cynical with regards to politics when a, a, a minister can say two directly opposite statements in the same speech. Mm. 
Uh, are you confused at all, Johnny Girk? I, I mean, I think everybody agrees that there's this plan that goes back eight years. It goes back further than that to 10 years to a HICWA report, but then the uh, report, the hosp- Small Hospitals Framework uh, report uh, of 2013 uh, says it's not safe to keep EDs like the one in Navin open. Uh, that remains open because there's nowhere else for people to go. Uh <sighs> The minister is saying that there is this plan to close it, uh, but it's not going to close. Are you confused at all? Yeah, Michael, um, very confused, Michael. And it's very, very hard, Michael, um, to, to find out, Michael, or know who's telling the truth. You're trying to take people at face value, give them the benefit of the doubt. But now, if, if you, like you said it yourself, Michael, if Damien is that sure that the, that, um, the emergency department in Navan is not going to close why doesn't he get on to the um, to the HSE mm. get them to put out a statement and say that you know there's another important line Michael in that prepared script that she read out last night you know and uh, it is important to emphasize that changes will be about patient safety and quality on the one hand and ensuring that people have care as close to home as possible now Michael what about the north or the south of the county how can that be close to home like uh, uh, you know if, if you're going to do away with services in Navan like you know so it, and, and as we said earlier, Michael, you're dealing with a population of 210,000 people, the fifth largest county in the state, you know, and we're downgrading services. It's not right, Michael. We have a very, very short opportunity, Michael, to do something about this. And it starts with the protest outside the Dáil tomorrow night. It, mm. it starts with the meeting in the Save Navin Hospital campaign. And I believe, Michael, we have one chance. And I do believe, Michael, and I don't say this lightly, that we have no choice, only go to the streets. OK, so you believe that there is this imminent threat that the ED is about to close. But Michael has written in that prepared statement we got last night, these will replace the current ED department. How much plainer can you get it than that? You know. Now we have a meeting, uh, hopefully we'll have this meeting with Stephen Donnelly next week, Michael, to get some clarity on this, Michael. But um, what we heard last night, Michael, it doesn't make for, for, for good reading. OK, protest outside the Dáil tomorrow, 12 to 2 in the afternoon and the Save Navin Hospital meeting then at 8 o'clock in the New Grange. And obviously, Peter Tobin, you believe that that threat is real and that uh, the future is all but certain. I think that line has dropped out on us, uh, but I think uh, that sums it up for the moment. But thanks uh, to the two TDs. Apologies uh, for uh, the line dropping out there. But uh, as I say, thank you to Peter Tobin, uh, who's founder and leader of A2 and a TD for Mead West. Uh, Johnny Gork is a Sinn Féin TD for Mead West. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we're facing the prospect of power cuts and blackouts because the demand for electricity will probably be greater than the amount of electricity that can be generated. Airgrid says the biggest growth in demand will come from data centres. There are currently 70 data centres operating in Ireland, which is an increase of 25% compared to 2020. Most of these data centres are concentrated around Dublin, which has become the largest data centre hub in Europe, accounting for 25% of the overall European industry market share at the end of 2018, with the nearest competitor, London, recording a market share of 24%. This is uh, Dr. Patrick Bresnahan of NUI Maynooth. It's incredible stuff. But as he says, a quarter of Europe's data centres are based in Ireland and it is an industry that continues to grow and grow. Over the last four years, there has been an annual increase in demand usage, around 600 gigawatts from data centres alone, 
which is equivalent to the addition of 140,000 households to the power system each year. 140,000 households each year. Now, that does sound a, a lot, but it breaks down on average at about just five or six data centres using all of that electricity. An average data centre with a load of 60 megawatts is comparable to the usage of a large town or small city such as Kilkenny. And the population of Kilkenny is about 26,500 and that's just the start of it because more data centres will need more electricity. Data centres currently represent 11% of grid capacity but Airgrid estimates this will be 28% by 2030 based on existing connections. Existing connections, that's almost 30% of all of the electricity produced in the country being used by data centres in less than a decade. If all proposed data centre projects were connected, this figure could be as high as 70% of grid capacity by 2030. That's no joke. 70% of Ireland's electricity needed for data centres alone by 2030. This is compared with 2% of electricity consumed by data centres worldwide. Right, that's uh, Dr Patrick Bresnahan, as I say, of uh, the National University of Ireland in Maynooth. He was speaking to the Oireachtas Committee on uh, the Environment and Climate Change yesterday. Let's uh, hear from a member of uh, that committee, uh, Senator Fianna uh, Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, who's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, This seems to make no sense. Well, I think if you look at what's happening in the uh, energy market, uh, there's a recognition that the digitisation of economies across Europe uh, will require a greater number of data centres. We only look at the way we live our lives now versus 10 years ago. Uh, The amount of online data that we store, uh, the interaction that we have with the economic activity, those require an awful lot more storage of data. And to expect that the economy can continue to grow um, and become more digitised, which is an ambition from a European perspective, and then, and at the same time mm. expect that data isn't going to be stored or doesn't need to be stored, um, is a bit of a fallacy. So rather than controlling the storage of data, which I think would restrict economic growth, we have to look to generating more electricity. And as you know, the government have and the Oireachtas, with the support of the Oireachtas, have engaged and embarked on a very ambitious approach to the generation of electricity from renewable sources, which by 2030 uh, will reach 70% uh, of, of, of the grid, uh, and onwards full decarbonisation by 2050. Now, recognising that there is a significant growth in the requirement for data centres, that's a real opportunity for Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rather than uh, attempting to change the direction that the world is going, we have to become much better at moving forward the projects um, around the the, the generation of electricity because to decarbonise our our economy, we need to move away from the use of fossil fuels, whether that be gas or oil, uh, and the usage of clean electricity. Now, again, the ESB have embarked on a very ambitious plan to capture uh, offshore wind uh, off the west coast of Ireland, and by 2030 and beyond, they expect to be generating vast quantities of electricity from that source, which will uh, outperform the necessity or or what our own necessity will be, Mm. and we'll be able to export it. In addition to that, there are proposals to capture the wind at night when it's not needed uh, and and convert that into a a green hydrogen. But will that be enough? Uh, I mean, will I be able to watch the television while these data centres are are running or will the electricity be off? Will I be able to make my dinner or have a shower or do any of the other things that we need electricity for? And that's what, that's what Airgrid are signalling this morning with their report. They're indicating that if 
you take an unbridled approach to the generation or to the development of uh, data centres, whilst at the same time standing still and doing nothing else to generate extra electricity, well, you'd have brownouts. And they've recognised that they have, together with the energy regulator, have to put in place uh, effective measures now, between now and 2030, to ensure that that doesn't happen. And what they're doing, or what they're suggesting is, uh, as they're, well, there's two things happening. They're building uh, more uh, gas electricity generators while still, while still a fossil fuel, much reduced carbon versus oil or coal. Uh, they're proposing to keep the Money Point plan, which uh, the Money Point plant in in West Clare, which generates electricity from coal. The proposal was that that would be shut completely by 2025, and they're now suggesting that it should be held for a period of time longer until more of the renewables come onto the grid, uh, and that it be there as backup. So, you know, whilst the professor attempted to paint a very uh, dark picture yesterday and, and fair enough, that's, that's probably what he thinks is the right thing to do. Airgrid on the other hand are saying, this is manageable. Uh, there, there will be points uh, where we will be, you know, have, have you know, a tightness in terms of the demand versus what's, what's on supply, but that it's manageable and they will be bringing on additional uh, generating capacity in the intervening period. There was reference to a couple of points last year where um, we were close to uh, blackouts, but that was because of unscheduled and delayed maintenance at two of the gas powered mm. stations uh, on the grid. So all in all, we have we have huge opportunity with data centres, the usage of data and the management of data. And some detractors would seem to suggest that somehow data centres are not big employers. But in truth, when you look at the other businesses and ancillary facilities that develop around them, they are an important part of the future economy. Um, and it's up to all involved in the generation of electricity and the management of the grid, recognising the direction of travel, to get their act together over the, the next number of years to ensure that we don't have blackouts. And at the same it's time, it's up to them. There's a, that's a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes, isn't it? Are, are we throwing the dice here and seeing what way they land? No, because, like, you know, the professor mentioned if all the data centres that are proposed were to be built, mm. the reality is that they won't because that would outstrip demand. It's like anything in a competitive environment. You may have three people uh, attempting to provide a facility of where only one... Well, they wouldn't if you had a cap on the amount that uh, could be established here. The marketplace will put its own cap on it anyway. It's like many... I've seen it, whether it's in housing or... But if that cap cap results in so many centres that uh, the demand for energy outstrips the amount of energy that is supplied, that comes back to me not being able to watch the telly or make my dinner or have a shower... Yeah, and that won't happen because there's a couple of things that that will will, will restrict development generally over the coming years. Uh, the the, the Iraq has passed legislation recently about the establishment of carbon budgeting, um, and each sectoral uh, department will have a responsibility to to decide on the amount of carbon that can be emitted or utilised within each sector, whether it be agriculture, whether it be energy generation, mm. or right across uh, the Irish economy. And so the carbon budgeting, if you want will effectively set constraints across all sectors. So this notion that's being put forward by some in the Oireachtas who just want to hammer the technology sector uh, in isolation, I think is 
not the way to go. I think you have to look at the economy in the whole. In, in the whole. Well, look it, at the it's, decarbonisation. It's, har- it's hardly that, given what we heard about. It's hardly that, though, given what we heard about the presence of uh, this industry in this country. Uh, I mean, you're talking about a, a ridiculous amount of data centres, obviously relative to the rest of Europe, when there's more in Dublin than there is in London. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at it, you, you can take that approach. And if the, the uh, you know, ministers and governments of, a previous, of previous decades took the same approach to the pharmaceutical sector, I mean, our pharmaceutical sector is very large by comparison to our relatively small population because we're net exporters um, of pharmaceuticals and we derive a lot of employment and good, good, good lifestyles as a result mm. of it. And the same applies to the management and control of data. Uh, and it is, in my view, the, pharm- you know, the, the pharma of the future. Um, and we shouldn't, uh, just because it puts us under pressure to come up with solutions, uh, turn away from it. Yes, it poses challenges, but it, it poses and it provides very significant opportunities for future employment. Um, and therefore, what we've got to, to, to recognise is that, of course, we can't have blackouts, so we've got to manage our grid. We've got to ensure that we generate enough electricity in the short term until the capacity mm. comes on board uh, from the offshore wind. Um, and we, 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 we control uh, the, the growth of data centres between here and then, and that will happen. But There's uh, no uh, doubt that will happen. How much employment, I mean, uh, you said uh, that uh, you're... Uh, not in agreement with the criticisms, uh, but a, a lot of the work that's done in this uh, in these data centres is done by the machines in them. No, I, I accept that, as, and that's the digital economy. Let's be honest mm. about it. But there are other facilities and enterprises that develop and build around that provide mm. services to these data centres. Um, you know, whether it's like you, you look at what Amazon is doing. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a massive disruption um, in what was you know the old retail sector. But that's where consumers are gone, uh, and they're they're moving away from the shop floor towards uh, the large mm. distribution centres, and that requires data management behind it. Uh, and there are jobs and job opportunities in all of those services as well. And if we are to continue to be a leader in the technology sector, then we have to embrace, in my view, all aspects of it. Um, but we are. I mean, we we're already that. We're above and beyond all of that. Uh, yeah, but you know, you can I mean, lose your competitiveness. To... You can lose your competitiveness or your place in that space very, very quickly. Um, but you can, data, But but the, the the fear here is is that we lose the electricity that we need for uh, our day to day lives. That we'll be out buying candles and that there won't be any heating in our homes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, and I get that, Michael. And the point is that the the flags are being raised now at this point that suggests. You know, if we do nothing, if we stand still in terms of our approach to the generation of electricity between here and 2023, 24, 25, yes, if you allow on the one hand the growth of data centres and you don't factor in the necessity to grow the generation of electricity, well, you'll have a problem. But suggesting that, that, that the, the solution is to prevent the growth of the data centres, uh, I think is not the way to go. I'm saying, to, in line with what Airgrid is saying, which is to increase the capacity uh, on our electricity generation to meet uh, the expected demand on the other side. And the two together then uh, will provide for uh, future-proofing of our, of our economy and providing useful and gainful employment for our graduates and for our, our uh, professionals across the state. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, as you may have heard, Gardaí and Navin are investigating how two young boys were knocked down in what was a hit-and-run incident in Athlumney on Sunday. The mother of uh, one of uh, those boys, Lorraine, is on the phone. And a very good morning to you, Lorraine, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. And maybe you tell us about your son, Jake, or how he is. No problem, Michael. Good morning to you. Um, I suppose, you know, Jake is still kind of shook over the whole incident that happened, um, including myself and his dad and his siblings as well, you know. Um, I suppose the only way I can put it is, Michael, that Jake had a lucky escape. Mm. Um, you know, that's what they said in the hospital as well. He was just walking along and the incident happened at 4.50 mm. in Atlumni Wood. And they were walking along the footpath and the car came into the estate and obviously we don't know what speed it was doing but it went up on the footpath, hit Jake and kind of grazed the other friend. Now the other friend was uninjured and didn't need to go to hospital but at the time, it was just after the incident happened, I got a phone call um, you know, saying it was the guards and that Jake was a victim of a hit and run. Um, he was okay, but he was in an ambulance and they needed a parent mm. to get over to the scene, you know, because the ambulance couldn't leave, obviously, till the parent got there. But when you get a phone call like that, you know, I, I just, I didn't know what to think, you know. I, I just broke down, you know, I had to run into the neighbours because I was at home with my toddler. My husband was about 20 minutes away, so I just wasn't waiting, mm. you know, taking any chances. Well, I can imagine it. Your whole world must have stopped to get a phone call to say that your son it has been... It, you know, and even when I ran into mm. the neighbours, I don't even think I was making any sense whatsoever, yeah. but um, fair play to them, you know, they brought me over mm. and just, I just didn't know what I was going over to your, your, no, your, your mind was racing, no doubt, yeah. You, yeah. you can only imagine the worst when you hear that your son's been knocked down and has been taken to hospital in an ambulance. Uh, yeah, this and this, Michael, you know. It, it, it was bright at that time, obviously, just before five o'clock in the evening. Uh, um, it's still bright around that time. Uh, what and I'd only seen Jake. Jake had popped back in at three o'clock mm. um, to contact one of his friends and... Um, I said, look, I'll ring you shortly for dinner. Dinner will be about half six, you know, and this incident happened mm. at, at 4.50. Like, it's just mind-blowing, you know. Mm. And were there any witnesses? Well, obviously the friend, one of the friends, so there was three other friends, um, and they were just so shook up over what had happened. Obviously, they're 16-year-old lads, you know, the friend is on the ground after being, there's been a big bang from the impact and a car has driven off and their friend is on the ground. Like, you know, they're just more concerned about the friend. But obviously one of the witnesses, they did see a grey colour vehicle driving like into the estate, on into the estate. Mm. That's all the information they have. They don't have a reg or a part of a reg or anything like that. Not, I, not at the minute. I can't really disclose much information um, on that. And mm. um, as the guardie are making inquiries regarding that, Michael. But yeah, at the minute, we're just looking for a grey coloured vehicle that had headed on into the, the estate at around four fifty. We're just appealing for you know, guardie are doing house to house inquiries, appealing for a CCTV footage that someone may have on the side of their house, the front of the house. 
to have seen maybe the vehicle coming into the estate around that time mm. um, or any dash cam footage at all, you know. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you're looking for information, in fact. If people have information, if they know anything about the car, the driver, or if they've uh, dash cam footage or anything like that to make it available to the guards. This is it, Michael. Like, at the end of the day, mm. I don't drive myself, but... You know, if you hit a dog, you'd stop and see, is the dog okay? Check for any information for the owners of the dog to contact them, bring to a vet, whatever it may be. Like, this is this is my son. It's someone's child, you know. If it was a younger child at all, you know, um, the outcome could have been totally different. And Jake had a very lucky escape. So we want to find the person who did this. Mm. Yeah, well, I presume he was lying on the ground when they drove away. Exactly. Yeah, so, so they, so they, le- they, him they left the him side. for dead, in other words, Lorraine. Yeah, the car yeah. hit him from the side, yeah. Michael, so he was quite lucky where the impact got yeah. him. He's just left with internal bruise and, and obviously, you know, the physical shock and the psychological shock from it as well. Mm. But had Jake, his friends had said that had Jake been one more foot out onto the grassy verge where he was on the path. If he had been a step out onto the grassy verge at all, the car would have hit him from a different angle and, you know, things could have been so different. So he's just so lucky. Mm. Well, of course, uh, I mean, getting hit by a motor car is a very serious thing to happen. And if you're driving a car, you said you don't drive, Lorraine, but I, I, I think myself that if I was driving a car, let's say at 20 kilometres an hour, very, very slow, and you hit a, a person uh, and they ended up on the ground, you probably would hope that you hadn't killed them. Exactly. It's just inhumane. It yeah. really is. To drive know. away is incredible, yeah. I but That's the fact. I'm, You know, obviously we're so grateful, you know, that Jake is in one piece. Mm. You know, and, you know, we can deal with the shock and everything like that. Mm. But at the end of the day, I just cannot get my head around Michael and my stomach is just sick, you know. And he's a big lad as well. You were uh, telling Maggie, I think, that... Uh, you, Jake is six foot, yeah. you know, and it, like, it's not that he would be, you know, a big build as such, but mm. he would be robust because, you know, he plays soccer, he's very sporty, so um, that in itself, you know, but mm. as we said, we could have been looking at something completely different, you know, um, so we just need any information whatsoever, okay. you know, if you may think it's only something small, it's not. Were the boys you know, able to guess at what speed the car was doing or anything like that? No, no, Michael, because when you think about it, these lads are walking mm. along the footpath. And then suddenly bang, yeah. You know, it's mm. just, I think they're just, mm. the friends are getting over the initial shock of it well, as well at this stage. Mm. So. Well, they'll never forget it anyway, that's for certain. You'll never forget no. it, Lorraine, but the, the will boys not. will never forget it, yeah. No, no. Yeah, so um, just to conclude, you're just appealing to anybody who has any information uh, to come forward. Exactly. A great a grey a dark grey coloured vehicle at four fifty in Atlumney Wood, either heading into the estate or coming out. Um apparently this vehicle actually drove by the ambulance coming back out a while later. So I don't know if they were just watching to see what had happened, was it serious or but we do believe that the vehicle was heading into the estate and you know, stopped in there for some time before coming back out. 
Okay. Listen, Lorraine, we'll leave it there and hopefully uh, somebody will come forward. They can contact uh, the Gardaí directly or on the confidential line one eight hundred treble six treble one, or they can contact the radio station if uh, they wish. Or uh, I'm sure uh, people uh, will find a way of getting information to the guards if that's what they want to do. But uh, thanks uh, for speaking to us uh, this morning and for joining us on the programme. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Thank, Thank you, you indeed. That's our programme for today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.